0: Well, if you don't have your Bibles open to Colossians, get them open in front of you. And we're continuing our series entitled The Christ-Centered Life. We're doing this series because, as I've said all all the way along, you and I were created to have at the center of our lives a relationship with God. We were created for God. We were created to find our meaning, our identity, our purpose through relating to God. We, We were created so that because of his love for us and the joy of knowing him, this would promote in us love for him and love for our neighbors. And yet, often what can happen for us as Christians is that our relationship with God moves from being in the center of our lives to out to the periphery. And when that happens, when our relationship with Christ is no longer at the center of our lives, then our Christianity just gets reduced to theology and rules. It's just a whole heap of head knowledge, just an ideology with an accompanying set of ethics. And so what we're doing is I don't want to live that way, and I don't want you to live that way. So what we're doing is we're studying through this book of Colossians so that we'll learn principles for how we can live a Christ-centered life. And so far in chapter one, verses three to 14, we've seen the first principle of living a Christ-centered life is that a Christ-centered life is a prayer-centered life, is that you're never going to live with Christ at the center of your life unless you're daily talking to him, unless you're speaking with him. And then, and then a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 15 to 23, and we saw in this amazing passage, Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ, The supremacy of Christ's character, he is the image of God. The supremacy of Christ over creation, he is the ruler, the firstborn over all creation. He created all things and sustains all things. And then we saw the supremacy of Christ over the church, he is the head of the church. And I got you to underline verse 18 in your Bibles, so that in all things he might be preeminent. And I said the second principle of a Christ-centered life is that a Christ-centered life is a life in which Christ is preeminent. Where you are seeking every, in everything in your life, you are seeking to honour Christ. You're seeking to honour him in your finances. You're seeking to honour him in the way that you use your time. You're seeking to honour him in your relationships. You're seeking to honour him in your work. He he is the one who you're trying to put first in your life in all things. And then we came last week to verses 24 to verse 7. And this was another feast of the scriptures, wasn't it? We saw in this passage the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And that in Christ are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge of God. And I said last week that the third principle of living a Christ-centered life is that a Christ-centered life is a life where you trust in Christ's sufficiency, where you're looking to Christ moment by moment. And when the struggles and when the hardships come into your life, you look to Jesus for your strength and your wisdom and your sufficiency. But now we come to verse 8, all right, in Colossians chapter 2. And Paul is now, he's going to address his major concern in this letter. Now, you'll remember that we said right in the very first week that Paul writes this letter to the Colossians because there were these false teachers who were coming along to church every Sunday. They were coming along to church, and they were infecting people with their teaching. They were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, and they were teaching that you needed to add something to Jesus And so Paul is now going to take this head on in verse 8 and following. Now, but before we look at that, I want to talk about a disease that is plaguing the body of Christ. A disease that I've seen that is an epidemic that is plaguing the body of Christ that nearly everyone is infected. And if you aren't infected with this disease now, it's only a matter of time before you get infected. And the terrible thing about this disease is that most people don't even know that they're infected with this disease, even though everything in their life is pointing to the fact that they've got this disease. The way they handle relationships, the control and manipulation that they are doing in their life, the the lack of rest that they have in their life. Do you know what this disease is? It's identity amnesia. Forgetting who you are. Paul Tripp is one of my favorite authors And he says that, you know, the most important or most influential person in your life, apart from God, is guess who? Is you. You're the most influential person in your life because, as Paul Tripp says, no one speaks to you more than you speak to you. You are in a constant conversation with yourself, speaking to yourself. And you're always speaking to yourself about your identity. Basically, we're speaking to ourselves about this thing. We basically say, I am, fill in the blank, therefore, I am significant, accepted, and secure. We're always saying these things to ourselves. For example, some of you might be saying, I am loved by my husband, therefore, I'm significant, accepted, and secure. Some of you put your identity in relationships, in getting the affection of your husband, in having his affection. And if you have the affection of your husband, then you feel significant, and then you feel accepted, and then you feel secure. But the only thing is, is that if you find your identity in the affection of others, you will put a weight on others that they just can't bear. You'll be looking for them to provide your needs, and they will eventually crumble under that because they won't be able to provide you what you're looking for. Others of you, you talk to yourself this way, you say, "I am a high achiever, therefore I am significant and accepted and secure." This is what I do. This is what I say to myself often. Now, what I have here this morning is my master 's degree from it 's upside down my master 's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary in order to train to become a pastor, I went over to Dallas and I did a four years master 's in theology in order to become a pastor and I graduated, you probably can't see it from there, but, but right here, this gold badge indicates, now not all master's degrees have this, this gold badge indicates that I graduated with not just regular honours, high honours, high honours in my class. Right. Now you don't need to clap. <laughs> um, but not only that, not only that, I'll never forget the day of our awards chapel. You see, they would give out awards as well at Dallas Theological Seminary. And in that awards chapel, I won the award for expository preacher, the best expository preacher. And I also won the leadership, the Lorraine Schaefer Leadership Award. And this should have been one of the greatest moments of rejoicing in my life. I mean, God had amazingly sustained us for four years while we were in Dallas. Tegan had been right there by my side. And, you know, I had taken these awards from the Americans. This should have been a moment of great rejoicing. But instead of a moment of great rejoicing, I remember the day distinctly. I went out into my car, and for about five minutes, I wept. And they were not tears of joy. They were tears of sadness. And in my heart, what surprised me is what was coming out was this. I showed them. I showed them. And I wept. And I've reflected on it, and I've thought, who did I show what to? See, I was so blind to the fact that much of my drive to achieve was coming from a need for identity, a need to prove myself, to prove that I am significant, I am accepted, I am secure. All my life growing up, I I, I struggled to read. um, I'm one of those kids that in the class, when we went around reading a passage, I would be freaking out the whole time, reading my part about 10 times just to get it right because of the fear of reading. And making a mistake. And so given my personality, instead of mucking up, I determined I am going to be a high achiever. And I rose to the heights. Graduated sutra cum laude from Dallas Theological Seminary. Won the preaching prize. Won the leadership prize. And now I have in my possession... The things that indicate that I am significant and I'm secure and I'm accepted, but it wasn't enough. It's never enough. If you're putting your identity in your achievement, what you will find is when you get to the top of that mountain looking for fulfillment, it'll never fulfill you, it'll never be enough and you'll need to go to the next mountain. It also turns you into a very, very difficult person to work with. A highly competitive person who sees every person as an obstacle and other people as an opportunity to use. Doesn't help you love God and doesn't help you to love your neighbors. Others of you, you find your identity in this place. I am a person who has the perfect house. Therefore, I'm significant, accepted, and secure. I'm a I'm sort of person that has everything is in its spot in its house. Everything has this perfect spot, and I find my security in the fact that my house is always tidy and neat and wonderful, and you can tell that that is where you get your identity because there are occasions when people leave crumbs on the counter, and you can't believe it. How could these people do this to me? Leave crumbs on the counter, how could they crumb me like this? Don't they realize what this means to me? That my whole identity is built up in having a clean house? You're weird. That's you? That's strange. But we're all a bit strange. And we're all searching for identity. And we all look for it in the strangest of places. I am such and such. Therefore, I am significant, accepted, and secure. But do you know one of the most insidious places that you can find your identity One of the most insidious places that you can find your identity is in your religious performance, is in your religious performance. And what could happen is we say this, I am a good Christian, therefore I'm significant, accepted, and secure. I'm a good Christian. And because I'm a good Christian, I'm significant, I'm accepted, I'm secure. But I want to tell you something, and this is what the Apostle Paul would say. If you find your identity in your religious performance and you go down the pathway of religious legalism, it will lead to a prison. It will lead you to being in prison. And you see, this is what those Colossian heretics were seeking to do. They were seeking to lead these believers into prison. And that is why, look in verse 8 in your Bibles, Paul says this. He says, see to it. That no one takes you captive. The word captive means to be bound and put in prison. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Make sure, be on your lookout. See to it that no one puts you in this prison of religious legalism, where you're finding your identity from your religious performance. Now, what were these teachers saying? Well, they were basically saying three things. Look down in verse 16. Firstly, they were saying, to be a good Christian, you must follow the rules. I mean, you've got Christ, but to be a good Christian, you've got to follow the rules. Look down in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. They were saying, in order to be a good Christian, you've got Christ, but what you need to do is you need to follow the Old Testament. You need to add to Christ the keeping the Sabbath, keeping the food laws, keeping the festivals. And Paul, obviously, in verse 17, he says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The reason we don't follow those things today is because all of those things in the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ, and now Christ has fulfilled them, so we don't need to keep them. But yet you will find legalists come into the church, come into church, and they'll say, in order to be a good Christian... You need to follow the rules. And they'll have a set of rules for you to follow. Not biblical commands, but rules. Their own rules that they make up. And this is what good Christians do. They follow these rules. I'm going to speak a little bit more about the church environment that I grew up in. But I grew up in this church environment where to be a good Christian, there were certain rules that you followed. Women never wore slacks to church. That was a rule. Christians on Sunday they didn't go swimming that was a rule there was all these rules that you had to follow in order to fit in and be a good Christian the second thing that they were saying was that good Christians good Christians practice personal piety look down in verse 18 let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism now who here knows what the word asceticism means Probably not many of you. I looked it up. I had to look it up to, to find out its meaning. What it basically means is it means self-denial of worldly pleasures for spiritual good. Now, in the Bible, there are ascetic practices where we, we engage in things like fasting or prayer or Bible study or even a retreat. You might go on a spiritual retreat where you abstain from watching television in order to, to connect with God. These things are good things. And Paul would say they're good things. But the problem is, look in verse 18, the word insisting. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. When your personal pious practices become part of your identity, when you say, I am a good Christian because I have a quiet time every day or because I fast once a week or because I do this or because I do that, Then what you're doing is you're bringing that personal practice into your identity. And that will lead to a prison. That will lead to a prison. The third thing that they were saying in verse 18, look at verse 18, going on in detail about visions and worship of angels. Good Christians have spiritual experiences. Now it's interesting to me, we studied through the book of Romans about three years ago. Who he was there in the book of Romans? Do you remember the book of Romans? Wasn't that fantastic to get refreshed in the gospel of grace as we're studying through this book of Romans? And I remember in one service, I was talking about legalism, and a Pentecostal pastor, actually, he was visiting us that, that morning, and he came down and he spoke to me. And he said, you know, you Baptists, you probably have all these problems with legalism, with certain man-made rules and things like that. But he said, Do you know the problem with us is that what can happen in our churches? Is that people feel that in order to be a good Christian, every Sunday they need to have this experience. Every Sunday they need to come down the front and be zapped by God and have this, whoo, this sort of experience with God. And he said it's exhausting as a pastor trying to, to drum up this experience for people so that they can feel like they're good Christians. Paul says, that this will lead you into a prison. This will lead you into a prison because religious legalism will lead you to three places. Firstly, look in verse 16. He says, "'Let no one pass judgment on you. "'It will lead to judgmentalism in the church.'" A church where people are getting their identity upon their religious performance will lead to a judgmental attitude in the church. Secondly, look in verse 18. It will lead to spiritual pride. Notice he says they're going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. It will lead to spiritual pride that I'm better than you. But the very worst thing that it will lead to is verse 19. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its ligaments... And joints grows with the growth that is from God. The worst thing about legalism is it will disconnect you from Jesus, who is the one where spiritual life comes from. You know And I've seen it in churches that legalists come into the church and they insist to be a good Christian. You need to follow the rules to be a good Christian. You need to have personal piety to be a good Christian. You need to have spiritual experiences and they form it in your identity. And then what that leads to is judgmentalism, spiritual pride, and God resists the proud. So you lose a connection with Christ and the church just becomes a shell. There's no spiritual life in the church anymore. Growing up, I had two experiences of church growing up that were very contrasting. My first experience of church, first 12 years of my life is I went to this, this church and they were a church of people where the people were getting their identity. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? Are, are, you getting, are you tracking with me? What you're saying in your brain is I am a good Christian because I do this, 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 this. That's what makes me a good Christian, my religious performance. And so I'm secure, I'm significant, I'm accepted because of this. Do you get, you get what I'm saying? Give me some nods. Give me some amens. Good. Okay. You with me? Give me something. All right. So, So growing up, these people, I love these people. I call them auntie and uncle. They're precious people. But we used to fight over the most ridiculous things, whether to have one cup for communion or multiple little cups. We used to fight over whether women should wear skirts to church or whether they're allowed to wear slacks. We'd fight over all these sort of little insignificant things. But the worst thing in the church was that that whole 12 years that I was there, I never saw one adult baptism. The power of God was not there. They were disconnected from the head. There was no spiritual life there. Now, when I was 12, my dad, God touched my dad in a unique way, and he got ignited with a passion for evangelism. We went down to the Sydney Anglicans, got trained in door knocking, came back, started to knock all the doors in our region. Lo and behold, numerous people became believers. We tried to bring those believers back into our little legalistic church, but they wouldn't fit. And so we started this church underneath our house at 4 p.m. every Sunday afternoon. And it couldn't have been more different. I mean, here were people who were redeemed by the gospel who loved Jesus, who would sing those daggy songs, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. And they would sing it with such joy in their heart because Jesus had changed them. I'll never forget, I'll never forget this one Sunday I was there and one of the guys got up and he said, all right, um, what we need to do is um, we're all having our smokes in in various areas around the church. Can we please just assign a smoking area so that I don't have to pick up all the, the, you know, the durries afterwards. Now that is confronting, isn't it? But that's beautiful. Here were people who are being transformed by the gospel, and yes, their lives are being I'm not advocating smoking, their lives were being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was no judgmentalism. There wasn't those sorts of things in the church. There was life. Jesus was working in the church by his gospel. See, the truth of the matter, people, I hate to burst your bubble, all right? But I'm going to burst it for your good. There are no good Christians. (laughs) There is no good Christians. See, what you do when you say that to yourself is you're basing your identity. I'm a good Christian because of my work, because of me. And I think, I think actually what happens is this. I think what actually happens is this for most of you is you actually say this to yourself. I am a bad Christian. Therefore, I'm insignificant, not accepted, and not secure. Most of you don't think that you're keeping the rules. Most of you don't look at your life and you don't have much personal piety. Most of you, um, you know, you look at your life and you're not having much spiritual experience. And so you think you're a bad Christian. And, and so what this does is this drives you further away from Jesus, It doesn't drive you to him. It drives you further away because you think, I'm never going to work enough. I'm never going to work enough to be good enough for Jesus. You don't want to know the truth of the gospel. This is good news. Look at this. Verse nine. For in him, say "in in him, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You couldn't get a grander statement about Christology. In Jesus dwells permanently resides the fullness of deity he is fully God and fully man there is nothing lacking in Jesus amen nothing lacking in Jesus he is the head it says over all rule all authority that is who he is and look at what it says about us in verse 10 and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority You have been. This is a perfect tense. It describes some action that's happened in the past which has ongoing results. You have been filled. You see, what you need to realize, I want you to understand this. The Christian life isn't, you live the Christian life from fullness, from the fullness of what you've received from Christ. You don't live the Christian life out of emptiness, seeking to try and find something, you live the Christian life out of the fullness of what you've been given in Christ. So there are no good Christians, but there is this, I am in Christ. Amen. I am in Christ. Therefore, I am significant, accepted, and secure. That is my identity. That is what I should be looking for. Who cares about Della Seminary degrees? They mean nothing. Who cares about whether your house is perfect or anything like that? Well, I'll care if I'm coming over on Friday night for dinner. But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. What matters is that you are in him. And this is, I'm really excited about this. So can you just, I try every Sunday to control my excitement, because my wife says to me, Timon, you know, you, you get too excited. So, but can I, can I please go to 10? Can I go to 10 today? Because this is exciting. This is exciting stuff. So Paul is going to give us here three aspects of our identity in Christ. Here's, here's the first aspect. You are God's child, therefore you are significant. Look in verse 11. Paul says, in him, because you're in union with Christ... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You know, circumcision in the Old Testament was this sign given to Abraham and his offspring, offspring, a sign of the covenant. They were to circumcise the firstborn, or all their sons on the eighth day. And this was to be a sign that they were part of the covenant people of God, that they belonged to God, that they were God's chosen people. And what Paul is saying is it's not just the Jews who have been circumcised, but we have been circumcised with a circumcision, a spiritual circumcision done by Christ. The moment we came into union with Christ, what happened was our old nature was crucified, was done away with. And we received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So now we are God's children. We are part of God's family And baptism is a symbol of this. Look in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. When we go down into the water, that symbolizes that our old life is dead. When we come out of the water, that symbolizes that we've come to new life and we've joined his people. So we are now significant because we are his children. We sing this beautiful song. It goes like this. You are a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. My significance comes from being loved by God. Does it come from this stupid degree? Does it come from other people? It comes vertically from him by being loved by him. Look in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love the metaphor here. He's saying, "Like your sin is like this on this huge list." Can you imagine a list of your sins? For some of you, the list would be pretty short. I think my list would, would take up this whole entire auditorium, all the lists of my sin. But what it says here is this sin has been taken. It's been nailed to the cross. The legal requirement of my sin was death. And Jesus died in my place so that I am forgiven of all my sin. Who here loves the hymn, It is well with my soul? It is well with my soul. I love the way it goes. Listen to, listen to the way this, the, the, the hymn goes. It goes, my sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, all of my sin, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Can you see what the the hymn writer is asking us to do? He's saying, speak to your soul. Sell your soul to worship God because all of your sin has been done away. So the second aspect of our identity is you are forgiven, therefore you are accepted by God. You are forgiven, you are accepted by God. Now Richard Lovelace, he writes this in one of his books, and I think this is fascinating. He says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine. So many Christians have a theological commitment. If I was to ask you, did Jesus forgive you of all sins, you would say? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Answer to that is yes. Did Jesus forgive you of all your sin? Yes. Yes. Good. Good. All right. But in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification, that's their daily walk with God, for their justification. Listen to this. Drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity... Their past spiritual experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Think about that last one, the infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. You and I, if we were to be honest here on Sunday morning, there are certain sins that we are trying to avoid, aren't we? All right? And what could happen is we think that because we're avoiding these certain sins that that means we are more acceptable to God because we're following and we've got a good track record. But notice what Richard Lovelace writes. He says, few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted. You're accepted. You're accepted. God accepts you. Looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. Do you start each day waking up saying, Thank you, God, I am forgiven? Therefore, I'm accepted by you. My acceptance isn't based upon my religious performance. It's based upon Christ's religious performance. There are no good Christians. There's only a wonderful, good Savior. The third, it gets even better. The third aspect of our identity is found in verse 15. Look at this. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and the authorities, there, they're the satanic forces. And what Paul is saying is he's saying this third aspect of identity is that you are standing in the victory of Christ, therefore, you are secure. You're standing in the victory of Christ. Sin is defeated, death is defeated. The devil is defeated and you are standing in his victory. I love how Paul puts it at the end of Romans 8. He says, I am convinced. Everyone say convinced. I am what? Convinced. I'm convinced. I'm absolutely persuaded that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor depths nor any other thing is going to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I am secure in him. Whatever comes my way, it doesn't matter because on that cross, he defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the devil. It's done. It's over. It's defeated and I'm in him. Amazing security that you have in Christ. Amazing security that you have in Christ. But have you got identity amnesia? Have you forgotten who you really are? Are you seeking to find your identity in achievement? Many of you are people pleasers. You find your identity in having people pleased with you. You know that doesn't work, you know that doesn't fill you. There's only one place to find your identity, and that's where you are created to find your identity in Christ and Christ alone in him now how do you actually like um how do you actually um apply this find your identity in christ well you're going to have to come back next week because next week we're going to look at verse 20 chapter 2 verse 20 to chapter 3 verse 4 where paul talks about living free in christ but you can read ahead you're allowed to do that but this is the fourth principle of living a Christ-centered life. A Christ-centered life is where we get our identity from Christ alone. It's not a horizontal thing. We don't get our identity on the horizontal. We get it from the vertical, from Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. Again, if you would like any information about the life at OBC, please go to our website at www. Oakdenbaptist.org